Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The water supply in the Colorado River Basin has been shrinking for the 40 million people who rely on it. But for many Native communities, the struggle to access clean water is nothing new. We'll have more on that, plus a look at how recent warm and dry weather is impacting trees, shrubs, and lawns. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Across the nation, almost half of tribal homes don't have steady access to clean drinking water. The Colorado River Basin is home to many of those where families depend on bottled water trucked in from faraway cities. And even in the few communities that have seen substantive improvements, the road to getting clean water is lined with hurdles. KUNC's Alex Hager reports. Just outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, the city turns to desert in a matter of minutes. Office buildings and apartments give way to a dusty expanse of scrubby brush and beige plains. And here, just 30 minutes from a city with half a million people, you can't drink from kitchen faucets. Our water here, it comes out. Some days, it's like the color of the sand here. Nora Morris was born and raised here in the Navajo community of Tohajale, New Mexico. Now she works at the senior center where clean water arrives by truck. To make sure that we're cooking with safe water and we're also utilizing water to sanitize our, you know, our pots and pans. That's the case for most of the 2,000 people who live here. Bottled water is brought in by the crate load from the Walmart in Albuquerque. But for bathing and cleaning, it's water from the city pipes. On our hair, it makes it hard. And then our skin is more drier. That's resident Rihanna Apicito. Sometimes it comes out orange, brown, black. They've had bad tap water here for decades. Mark Begay has operated the water system for more than 30 years. Five of the six wells in town have collapsed or stopped running. So we're only dealing with one distribution well, so we're in a water crisis here in Tojile. But a fix is coming. As far as tribal communities with bad water go, Tohajale is one of the lucky ones. It's about to get a pipeline, connecting it to the same water system that feeds Albuquerque. From atop a hill, looking out towards the city, Begay points to where it'll run. And it's going to come that way and zigzag this way. Water is set to flow in 2023, about 17 years after the town and Albuquerque's water department agreed to the deal. Even with support from politicians and advocacy groups, getting clean water just hasn't been easy. The frustration has came from various different entities or different setbacks. Sherry Lynn Apache manages funding for projects in Tohajale. Whether if it was a grant funding, uh, a property owner, um, land ownership, um, right-of-ways. One big hurdle came from a private developer who owned land in the planned path of the pipeline. And for a time, it seemed like it could stand in the way of getting clean water to Tohajale, but they finally struck an agreement in late 2020. It's, it's kind of sh- terrifying to know, like, we did once upon a time own 
the majority of the lands and why do we have such a a hard time regathering our land or the acreage of our land to move forward. And even with permission, there's still plenty of work that needs to be done. Once we receive the water, there's additional infrastructure that is needed within our community, additional funds that need to be provided, um, additional uh, pipings need to be upgraded from the asbestos pipings. And of course, all of this is expensive, especially for a community that struggles to fulfill the required matching for the grants it does receive or pay back money when it's been given as a loan. They've been able to get most of the way there with pandemic relief programs and the recently passed infrastructure bill. But Crystal Tuli Cordova says this is an issue that's playing out on Navajo land well beyond Tohajale and well beyond the timeline promised in the federal spending plans. She works as a hydrologist with the Navajo Nation Water Department. You think about the amount, you know, almost 40% of people that don't have running water. It's not going to take one um, infrastructure bill to address that, and it's not going to be able to be done by the end of 2024. These are challenges that are wicked. She says the core of these problems is rooted in the history of how the West was built, all the way back to the earliest days of white settlers deciding who would have access to water. And when you look at the historical photos of, you know, the signing of different compacts, and what's visible there is that there was no presence of indigenous peoples participating, although they've occupied the, the lands and used the water resources. And with climate change shrinking the supply in the Colorado River and disproportionately harming indigenous people, working to get them clean water is only getting more important. In Tohajale, New Mexico, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC. This is the first in a series of stories we'll be bringing you this month and into January ahead of the first ever mandatory cutbacks for some who use water from the Colorado River. You'll find more of our reporting on water issues in the West at KUNC.org. Recent weather along the Front Range has been abnormally warm and dry. And although that might be great news for those who aren't quite ready to say goodbye to spending time outdoors, that dry air and lack of snow can be tough on trees and other landscaping. Given that the forecast calls for more unseasonably warm temperatures in the coming days, many plant experts say it's a good idea to water trees, shrubs, and lawns. For more, we're joined by Natalie McNeil. She's an ISA board-certified master arborist and district manager with Davy Tree Expert Company in Fort Collins. Natalie, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Erin. So it usually feels like once the leaves are down and they're raked up, you're pretty much done thinking about your trees until the spring. That's not really the case, though. They might be dormant, but they still might need some care over the winter. Can you talk about what trees are doing over the winter? Sure, yes. Uh, trees, even though they we say they go into dormancy, they actually still do some root growth and things like that through the winter. So um, it's important even in a, a normal precipitation year for Colorado to still winter water uh, your trees. But it's even more critical when we have the dryness and the heat that we've experienced as of late here in Fort Collins. And let's talk about what happens when we don't see snow when we typically would like this year. What are some of the problems that a warm, dry autumn and early winter uh, can cause for our trees? 
Yes, so trees need water to survive, and they have a really good defense mechanism of storing up energy within their um, roots to help combat seasons like this. But if we have prolonged and repeated seasons of stress, they don't have the ability to maintain or replenish those reserves. And so what we often see is they'll leaf out, they'll bud out, they'll flower in the spring and be beautiful, but then they'll all of a sudden collapse in midsummer to late summer when temperatures increase again and, and things like that. So we're really putting a lot of repeated stress on the trees if we're not maintaining them through the winter months. Now, are some trees more susceptible than others to these kinds of problems? Evergreen trees are, are quite a bit more susceptible. So your pines and spruce, because they lose uh, moisture through their needles throughout the winter time. And so when we get dry weather um, and windy weather combined, it really has a, a large impact on spruce and pines, but all trees are equally affected by, by drought-like conditions. Right. Well, let's talk about this idea of supplemental watering. Could you explain what supplemental watering is exactly? Is it very different from regular watering that might happen during the spring and summer? Yeah. So you, when we water during the summer with through our irrigation systems, we're doing surface watering. Ideally, in the wintertime, you would do subsurface watering. So um, below in the top, you know, foot of soil, so eight to eight around around eight inches or so um, at a depth. Surface watering doesn't always allow us to get that moisture down to where those feeder roots are on the tree, which are a little bit lower than just the surface area. So subsurface watering allows us to get down to those critical, that critical root zone for the tree. And is that something that you can do with a, a hose or is it something that needs more specialized gear? Yeah, it's it's quite labor intensive for homeowners to properly water their trees on a subsurface. Um, most nurseries will sell um, a feeder that can attach to the end of your hose and you would put that in the ground every two to three feet around your drip line of your tree and down about eight inches into the soil in the hopes that you would give a mature tree, probably about 10 gallons per inch of diameter is the ideal kind of moisture that you'd want to give a tree in a month. Um, so hiring a professional arborist like, like those at Davy Tree, we can um, come out and do that in a much shorter time, save you, give you your Saturday back, so to speak. <laughs> right. And be sure that we're getting the, the, the water to where the root zone of the tree, where it needs to be. Right. Are there other uh, guidelines for supplemental watering so that it is most effective? Is there a good time of day? Yeah, you don't want the ground to be frozen. We can cause some damage if, if the water uh, freezes. So typically you like your temperatures to be above 35, 40 degrees and maintain that. So along that watering kind of mid-morning, midday, when it's a little bit warmer, although this year we haven't had to worry too much about that. It's been so warm, but um, as we get into the really winter months, not watering when it's going to be, when we're going to see a big temperature drop um, would be wise. Utilizing those warm days to, to water. Sure. Well, one thing that comes to my mind is that during times of drought, we maybe don't want to do extra watering of, you know, lawns and trees and plants. How do you make the case to, to do supplemental watering during a dry winter? Yeah, I mean, trees are especially important, right? So we, trees help us reduce our heat island effects and, and help us retain storm, you know, stormwater retention and 
So they're an important part of keeping our landscapes cool. And so keeping them alive is important. If we don't do that, we're going to have to water more if we don't have trees shading our grass or shading our homes or so it's a double-edged sword. You don't want to use water because we're in drought-like conditions, but if you can use it in the right way, um, directed at things that are going to help improve our drought-like conditions, then um, watering trees is is the way to go. <laughs> right. Well, how do you think landscaping, like the types of trees that are planted uh and that survive could change in northern Colorado if we do get these kind of climate patterns and dry weather persisting into the future. Yeah, there's a lot of research going on um, with that now. The, you know, climate change and how, how our hardiness zones might shift in years to come, which is a little bit troublesome, you know, for the future. But we have to kind of just let it play out, so to speak, and see um, what do what we can to reduce and help impact the climate change, but we are going to see a shift in the types of plants we can grow, um, the types of plants that will, you know, survive in our in our new growing conditions. Well, let me wrap up by asking if there's anything else that homeowners uh, can do to care for their trees during a dry winter season, like we're, we're staring down right now. Proper mulching around the base of trees will help with any uh, with water retention, so it helps reduce the drying out of the soil. So putting um, a nice layer of mulch under your trees will definitely help uh, re- them retain any natural moisture we get. Obviously, the supplemental watering, whether you do it yourself or you uh, hire an arborist to come out and do it for you, is critical um, through the winter months to make sure that your trees are healthy and thriving um, in the coming season. Natalie McNeil is an ISA board certified master arborist and district manager with Davy Tree Expert Company in Fort Collins. Natalie, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about how pandemic disruptions are complicating access to healthcare in states like ours. And although the dark winter skies are much bemoaned by many humans, we'll hear how they benefit the many migratory birds flying overhead. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Latinos have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. They're also more likely than non-Hispanic whites to have diabetes, which puts them at even greater risk. But pandemic-related disruptions are making it harder than ever to access health care in states like Colorado and Nevada. Bert Johnson has more. Primero vamos a hablar de qué es la diabetes. Sonia Figueroa is leading a class on nutrition for people with diabetes. She's in her second year at the University of Nevada, Reno's medical school. Here, she's explaining which vegetables have the least starch in them, like carrots, onions, beets, and chayote, a bright green gourd originally from Mexico. They're good for maintaining blood sugar levels. This class is offered through the volunteer-run Student Outreach Clinic. It's a full-service health center where anyone without insurance can get free medical care. And in Reno, where about a quarter of the population is Latino, it serves a lot of Spanish-speaking patients. Esaul Quesada Aguilar has been coming to the clinic for three years. Quesada Aguilar says he's been able to get checkups and monitor his diabetes. The clinic even provides the medication he needs. But on the day of the nutrition class, he's the only person who showed up. 
Olivia Penfill is executive director of the clinic. She says before the coronavirus arrived, it would get so busy they had to turn people away. A good Saturday clinic for us right now is about 16 patients, so almost half of what we were seeing previously. For a while in 2020, the clinic closed its doors. Gradually, it began offering virtual consultations and limited in-person appointments. Now that vaccines are widely available, it's open for walk-ins again. But patients have been slow to return to the student outreach clinic. Everybody got out of that routine of how do I come to the SOC, and I think we're still feeling the effects of that now. That's Dr. Aaron Derringer. He's a family medicine physician at UNR and an instructor at the med school. He helps oversee the care his students provide. Derringer's concerned the low turnout means more people are going without the care they need. We know those patients are still out there. It's not that everybody got miraculously better. About a fifth of Latinos don't have health insurance at all, according to research by the Kaiser Family Foundation. Jane Delgado with the National Alliance for Hispanic Health says that makes it harder for them to manage chronic conditions. Diabetes is a major problem for Hispanics, but it's a disease that can be managed controlled, and if you intervene early, you can prevent onset. Latinos are also more likely to get exposed to COVID because they often work in the service industry. Left untreated, diabetes can damage vision, circulation, and the kidneys, and it puts people at greater risk of dying if they get COVID. Samantha Palacios is the clinic's community outreach officer. She says even though services at the clinic are free, many patients still expect a bill. That can lead them to put off visiting the doctor for as long as they can bear. It's the first time they saw someone in 20 years, and now they're coming in because it's something that they can no longer ignore. On a recent Saturday, med students were busy setting up a temporary clinic at a small church in Lovelock, Nevada, a rural town 90 miles northeast of Reno. If you want to just like put out the blood pressure cuffs and the uh, gloves and the wipes and all of this stuff to create like a vital station at one of these tables. Tari Chadwick oversees younger students as they cart in big plastic boxes full of medical gear. She's one of the managers at the rural clinic. Chadwick says they have to be even more proactive when it comes to serving patients in rural areas. We see a lot of patients who are uncontrolled with their diabetes, who are never going to see a doctor because they don't have access or they don't have time. So when we come out, we're really trying to reach those diabetic patients. But that day in Lovelock, the clinic didn't see any patients at all. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Burt Johnson. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find more reporting from across our region at KUNC.org. Most migratory bird species we can see traveling across Colorado are well past peak migration for the year and have already settled into their winter homes. But a handful of species make their journeys late into the year, as chilly as that night air might be. Earlier this year, Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman caught up with Colorado State University's Kyle Horton, an assistant professor in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology, to learn more about bird movement across Colorado and the impact that we humans have on the journey millions of birds take each year. He started by explaining why the Rocky Mountain region is an appealing migratory route. This area is very unique in terms of bird migration. So we have a a wide diversity of habitat types. On the the east, we have, you know, grasslands. To the west, we have pretty high elevation mountain ranges. 
a lot of birds are going to be following these large geographic features too. So running north and south along mountain ranges, thinking about the front range of Colorado, um, might be a collecting point for a lot of birds as they, they pass north in the spring. But also just that diversity of habitats is going to also reflect a diversity of birds. So, you know, some birds that might be found uh, in the mountainous regions are not going to be found, for instance, out in the grasslands of Colorado and vice versa. For that reason, it makes it a really exciting area to watch migratory birds, both from the diversity standpoint, the topography that we have. That's a really exciting point as, as a bird watcher, but also as a researcher. And then in terms of the airspaces, I don't know if there's anything necessarily unique about the airspaces, but I always find it quite fascinating that, like, like I said, you can go out into the grasslands and hear birds flying over at night. And you can also, you know, drive up to 11, 12,000 feet uh, in elevation and also hear migratory birds flying over those airspaces. Basically, wherever you're at in Colorado, the likelihood of finding a migratory bird is quite high. I want to talk about the impact that humans have on these migrating birds, light pollution especially, and there's been these big lights out initiatives to reduce the amount of unnecessary outdoor light that we've got in our municipalities really across North America and the world. Can you describe the harms that light pollution brings to migratory birds and from your perspective as a researcher, the importance of turning lights out? When we think about migratory birds, right, we're describing birds passing under the cover of darkness. And I think when we, we describe that, we think of the perfect scenario, right? A starry night and these birds are moving through a calm, windless night and they're able to successfully you know, migrate north or south. Uh, the reality is, is that those dark nighttime skies are, are starting to become fewer and fewer um, as we start to populate the airspace with light pollution. And these birds have evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to rely on certain signals to, to navigate. So they might cue in on the stars at night to know which direction to fly. You know, light pollution is fairly new and novel. It's only been around for, you know, 100, maybe 200 years in some areas. And as it turns out, light pollution starts to disorient migratory birds. We've known about this for a while, too, when we think about lighthouses shining the way for sailors out in the ocean or along the Great Lakes. What we actually saw during some of these periods that overlap with migratory birds is that the birds would be attracted to these lighthouses and they would circle incessantly calling, sometimes colliding with the tower, going through their energy stores, which are so vital for their success and having to land on the ground completely you know, famished, devoid of their energy. And sometimes they're going to start getting predated by maybe galls along the coast um, or just not having enough energy to even, you know, continue that migration, ultimately fatally perishing. And this is now uh, wide, uh, is, a, is a large scale problem with lights on communication towers, lights on skyscrapers, even lights on our backyard porch. Um, these lights seem to attract the birds and they sometimes attract these birds, increasing the risk of collisions with those structures or just attracting them to suboptimal areas. So you imagine a, a small songbird um, that might require a forested area to feed on insects during the day now being pulled into an urban park, for instance, where it might not be able to find enough insects to feed on. Its risk of colliding with a building is now elevated. 
its risk of maybe being predated by a feral cat or a house cat is now elevated. So these lights have a, a large scale impact on these migratory birds, and it ultimately is leading to um, you know, some impact and declines in migratory bird populations. And as a researcher, this is something that I try to un understand both where and when the greatest threats to these migratory birds are in terms of light pollution, and what tools we can bring um, to bear to help migratory birds of saying, this is going to be a big night of migration. If you could turn your lights out in this very specific area for this night, this could help migratory birds successfully pass north or south. Now, when it comes to turning off lights to help birds, is it kind of an all or nothing sort of deal? Does it matter if I turn off my porch light if there's still a ton of light pollution coming from my block or, or from my town in general? Basically, anything helps. So turning off your light on your backyard porch can help. It might not you know, reduce a, a fatal collision at a skyscraper, but it might reduce uh, attraction to maybe you know, your backyard at night or something along those lines. So it's, it's not really an all or nothing strategy. Uh, every effort that can go towards helping reduce light pollution is a net benefit. You know, this problem is sometimes as simple as turning off the switch, flipping off the light for the night, or a few nights, or maybe the season. So I would say any effort um, to reduce light pollution is a net benefit for migratory birds. That was Colorado State University's Kyle Horton, an assistant professor in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. He's also the principal researcher at CSU's Aero Eco Lab, where researchers study bird, bats, and insect migration. That's our show for today. Tomorrow, we'll get a sense of Colorado's political climate with a look at an annual statewide survey covering Coloradans' opinions on everything from COVID mandates to the wording of statewide ballot questions. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.